If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. While you're turning, I just want to invite you, again, tonight is going to be, to me, is one of my favorite times of the year. It's really our family Christmas as a church family. I'm going to be reading the chronological Christmas story. We're going to have the uh, live animals. We're going to, the, the night in Bethlehem. It's, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful night. I hope, I hope, I hope that you'll be here at 5 o'clock tonight and then next Sunday, Next Sunday, we're going to have, it's just going to be a completely different kind of service. We're calling it our traditional Christmas. John's going to do a Christmas sermon. We're going to do traditional Christmas hymns. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to have a short, brief sermon. But we want it to be a really meaningful time. And so I pray that you will be here with your family to worship Christ on Christmas morning. Luke chapter 2, we'll begin in, in verse 1. We'll read the first seven verses together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, today we just say let us see Jesus. Let us see Jesus. Let us not be impressed by the power of Caesar let us not even be completely captured by the faithfulness of Mary. Let us be captivated by the goodness of God. I pray that, Lord, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of loss, in the midst of stress, in the midst of family tension and turmoil, Lord, would you bring our hearts to peace and rest in Christ? Would you show us that this wasn't just another baby born in another town and to another peasant family, but that this was the God-man who came, that we might be saved? Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would just lead us into worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My most memorable Christmas came during what was really my family's most difficult time. Uh, in 1996, I, we were away at Disney World. It was on my birthday, and our house burned down. And it set into motion a series of events that were just all-encompassing, as you can imagine, all the details, all the things that are going on when a family experiences something like that. You're wrestling with the insurance company and you're trying to find a, a new living situation and you're trying to get together and scrape together all of the, the bare essentials just to, just to get by. You're trying to figure out what is the permanent solution. How are we going to replace the house? All these things that are going on. And in the midst of that, I, I lost everything that matters to a 10-year-old little boy. Uh, my baseball card collection was gone. It was blown out the window with all the corners of the card singed. I had a Greg Maddox rookie card. I mean, come on. I, I, my bicycle, it was gone. My Super Nintendo, huh? Come on, y'all testify. Gone. All, even my clothes were gone. 
And so for a period of months, you're just scraping by and you're just going with what you have and what the kindness of a few people give to you. Everything's in turmoil. But I remember that Christmas. Our house had burned in June, and by Christmas we had finally settled into a rental house where we would live while we were rebuilding our home. And we had just been patching it, and, and Christmas is always big at my house. I mean, growing up, my family, they, Christmas was always just one of the, the highlights of the year. It was a big deal to my dad, a big deal to our family. And this particular year, there's just a lot of buzz, right? Because you need everything. <laughs> And our family, the way that we traditionally did it is our big gifts, we receive those on Christmas morning. We, you, you wake up and you go into the living room and there's all your, your big Christmas gifts. But that year it was different. My sister and I, we went to bed early, you know, like you're supposed to do on, on Christmas Eve. And my mom and dad, I remember them coming up and waking us up. Sorry. I remember them waking us up. In the middle of the night. And saying Christmas has come early this year. We went down the steps. And the living room is just an ocean of gifts. An ocean of gifts. There are things there that have been replaced. That were meaningful. My grandmother had given me a shotgun. And she had passed on. And had burned in the house. There was the exact shotgun. Just like the one that my grandmother had given me. And it was, it was there. There were the things that you always wanted. I had a Steve Young jersey, man. Like the legit Reebok Steve Young jersey, just like the one that he played in. I got this jacket. It's 49ers jacket. When's the last time y'all saw a starter jacket? You know what I'm talking about? But in 1996, man, this was the jam. You know what I'm saying? In all those years, I've never been able to get rid of this jacket. Because it reminds me of that Christmas and coming down and seeing so much. It's interesting, isn't it? That the most meaningful gifts often come in the strangest wrapping paper. That very often it's our hardest times that frame up God's greatest gifts to us. The book of Luke, what Luke is trying to portray in the birth of Christ is the sovereignty of God and his resolve to save his people. The sovereignty of God to ensure that his promises would come true and that his people would be delivered by God's own hand. But he wraps it up so immaculately and so strangely that to really understand the message of what Luke is trying to portray in the way that he presents to us the birth of Christ. You have to take it apart one layer at a time so that you can behold the full glory and beauty of the sovereign grace of God. The, the gift that he gives to us in that first Christmas. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see the strange wrapping paper of God's sovereignty. And I want us to see it by looking from three different perspectives that were there in that original Christmas. First, I want us to consider from the perspective of Caesar. From Caesar's perspective, Caesar did what he wanted to do. Caesar did exactly what he wanted to do. C Caesar Augustus was born as Octavian. He was the 
uh, biological nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar passed away, or when he was murdered by the great conspiracy with Brutus and, and all the crew, Caesar Augustus Octavian was surprised to find out that he had been uh, legally adopted by his uncle and had been named as the successor of Rome. Caesar Augustus is actually what his title became. It was a title of great honor because Caesar Augustus was perhaps the greatest administrator that Rome had ever, not, ever known. And he becomes the original imp emperor of the Roman Empire, the first one that is able to consolidate all of the power. But his rule was so wise and he was such an excellent emperor that, that Rome was able to know such a time of peace that it set up a foundation that would last basically a millennium. But you know, as we think on Caesar, Caesar did what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it. Caesar lived for his own name. Caesar lived for his own renown. Caesar lived for his own reputation. But it was really the wrapping paper of the sovereignty of God. See, Caesar was a man who had real power. He was unaccountable. He could do anything that he wanted to do. He was the ruler of the entirety of the civilized world. If you knew about it, he reigned over it. And so everyone lived by the decisions of Caesar. He had real power and he had real wealth. There was nothing that Caesar could want that he couldn't have. He had enough money to buy every gaming system out there, right? He had enough money to buy free of any car that he wanted. There was no nation that he couldn't have. There was no wife that he couldn't have. There was no possession that he couldn't have. There was no building project that he could not undertake. He had the wealth to be able to buy whatever he wanted to have, and he had the might to go and take anything that he didn't want to have to pay for. He had real wealth. And when you have real power and real wealth, you have what amounts to real freedom. Real freedom. He was unaccountable, able to do and go as he pleased. And so if you would have asked Caesar, why was the census taken? He would have said the census was taken because I wanted it to be taken. The census was taken because I demanded that it be taken. The census was taken because I wanted to exert my authority. The census was taken because I wanted to collect more taxes and to increase the wealth. The census was taken because I am free to rule as I see fit. And it's a reminder to us. As we look at Mary and Joseph having to capitulate to the decrees of Caesar and the most Un, uh, the most inconvenient of times, it's a reminder to us of how much of our lives are beyond our abilities to decide. That many of the decisions that most impact our quality of lives and our way of life are made by people that are not us, by people who are in authority that are beyond us. People that are like our government, our presidents, our, our Congress, like your mom or your dad. You didn't decide whether you were going to have an abusive father or a good father. You didn't decide whether you were going to have a neglectful and self-centered mother or a self-sacrificing and joyful mother. But the family into whom you were born, that impacts even your access to the gospel, doesn't it? The country into which you're born, that impacts even the, your access to the gospel, let alone your standard of living. Those things get to the quality of your life, don't they? You don't have any say in those. You don't have any say as to whether or not your son will be born with autism or Down syndrome. Or if he'll be healthy and be a five-star athlete recruited by the University of Alabama. 
You don't have any say as to whether you're born into affluence or if you're born into poverty, if you're born with every advantage that this world has to offer or you're born in complete disadvantage in the midst of a remote jungle. You have, you have no say of any of those things. In fact, for very many of us, it feels like our lives are determined by an abusive dad or by a bad boss or by a, a foolish government or maybe even by a cruel God without much to say at all. But the good news is, is that this is just the first layer of the story. This is just the first layer of the wrapping paper. This is just how it looks from the outside. This isn't what's on the inside. This isn't what's beautiful. It's just all you can see right now. And that gets us to the second layer that we can see from the second perspective. And that being Mary's perspective. So if you have Caesar, Caesar does whatever he wants to do. And Mary, well, she did all she knew to do. Mary did all she knew to do. Um, Mary admittedly finds herself in an incredibly complex situation, doesn't she? she? She finds herself in a situation that none of us would envy at all. And what, how does she respond to that situation? She responds, first of all, by being a good citizen, by being a faithful citizen. I mean, th- that's why she goes, she and Joseph went up, it says, from Galilee at the town of Nazareth. And they're going down to Bethlehem. And they're doing it so that they can be registered. And they're being registered for taxes. Now, it's interesting the way that it frames it up. Okay, so if you were, if you would have been born during Mary's day, there was a sect of Jewish people called the Zealots. You'll you'll remember that the name of one of Jesus' disciples is Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots, what they believed, is they believed that if you were going to be faithful to the covenant, if you were going to be faithful to the Old Testament and to the scriptures, that that what you would have to do essentially is form an an army and then try to overthrow Rome. And they believed that that was the way to be faithful to God and that if you were faithful to God in that way, that God would honor that. And just like he had at Jericho, just like he had with Pharaoh, that God would come and work through them to overthrow this great occupying Gentile nation, the Romans. And you can understand how they would feel that way. Mary responds in the exact opposite way of them. Mary is at full term, y'all, at full term. And she has to ride 90 miles from Nazareth all the way up to Bethlehem. It says up to Bethlehem, up to Bethlehem because it's a thousand feet above sea level, more than where she is in Nazareth. So she's going uphill, quite literally. I don't know if it was snowed. I don't know if she was barefoot. But it's it's an arduous journey. And she's going not to see her in-laws for Christmas. She's going not to receive some great reward or appointment. She's going so that she can pay her taxes. God only knows how that baby stayed in the whole way. 90 miles. I mean, can you imagine, ladies, for just a second, 90 miles to ch- on the back of a donkey to Chattanooga? Uh, that, that's how far it is from here. But what is she doing, y'all? What is she doing? She's doing the only thing that she knows to do. She's doing the only thing that she knows to do. In fact, you can see something here that she's, she's being a good wife. It, it's unknown whether or not she really even had to go. A lot of times it was just the husband that had to go. So it, there could be here in Mary a desire just to be with her husband. Or or maybe just to be with her husband because she wants him to be there when she's born. Other people say that there could have been a a poll tax that was specific to women that they had to pay at one time in their life. And so perhaps she's going to Bethlehem and she had to pay that in your hometown. So perhaps she's going to Bethlehem. 
But here she is being compelled. Caesar's doing what Caesar wants to do. Mary, she's just doing what she knows to do. She's not just a faithful citizen, though. She's a good mother. She's a good mother. There is no instruction manual on how to raise the Son of God. Imagine the pressure there. Imagine the pressure. Like, what if he gets scarred growing up? Like, what if, what if I, he somehow, you know, gets injured? You know, like, like well, I have the Son of God here. I, it's funny there to me that it emphasizes in verse 7, it calls him her firstborn son. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. That Mary was a virgin. She had no other children at this point. And, and it brought into my mind that back when Megan and I had our first baby, right? New parents. And you remember how you are as a new parent. Like, the baby just whimpers a little bit. And you go and you scoop them up. And you're rocking and you're singing and you're doing the whole thing, right? Like, you're getting the car seats in just right. And you, like, like, Megan and I, when we had Gracie, like, our first child, we, we were following all the rules of parenting. Like, we were Pharisees trying to get into heaven. You know what I mean? And, and that's what you do, isn't it? And then that oh, second child comes along, and they're jumping off the, off the stairs onto the, onto the couch. You're like, just don't miss, man. You just don't want to miss, all right? And so I can, I can imagine here, and here's Mary, and this is her firstborn son, and like none of this is going right. None of this is going the way that she would want it to go. She just has to do what she can do. She has to go to Bethlehem. That's non-negotiable. There's no choice that she has but to go to Bethlehem. And so what does she do? She just tries to be a good mom. What do you do when you have the Son of God? You don't know. You just mother him. You just love him. You just care for him. And so she takes him and she wraps him in swaddling cloths. That is, in the, in the first century, they would take and they would take the, the baby's hands all the way down and they would wrap it as tightly as they could uh, in, the, in the cloth. And it gives that sense of security, doesn't it? It gives a source of warmth. It, it, a, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths shows that there is a mother that cares for him. Shows that there is a mother that, that is taking care to make sure that he has all of his needs met. She, she wouldn't have wanted him to be born in that barn, but it was what she had. And so she made sure that he had a safe place. She made sure that he had a warm place, a place that was out of the weather. But there's Mary in the most inconvenient of circumstances, in, do, in exactly the place that she doesn't want to be. As she's a brand new mother, welcoming with all the hormones and all the stuff that goes into being a brand new mother. I mean, let's humanize them and recognize these are not just characters in the story. These are real people. She's just making it, man. She's just making it. And for all of us, we live in a world and so many people are deciding, making decisions on our behalf that determine our well-being. We have bosses that we're dealing with and we have uh, difficult family members that we're facing and we experience loss that we weren't planning on and our, our bank account isn't, isn't balancing out the way that we need it to and our, our kids are going through stuff at school and we... we None of this is in our control. And we have a lot more questions than we have answers. We have a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. We're just like Mary. And so Mary shows us that what do we do? We just do what we know to do. What God has revealed to us in his word. How God has called for us to commit ourselves to him even when we can't see around the corner. Even when it seems like everything in our life is inconvenient at best and awful at worst. But yeah, Caesar's doing what he wants to do and, and she's just trying to make it and do what she knows to do. But that's just really the second layer of the wrapping paper. 
we haven't even gotten inside. That Caesar's doing what he wants to do and, and Mary's doing all that she knows to do. But the entire time, what Mary couldn't even have wrapped her mind around and what we in our everyday lives struggle to wrap our minds around is that the whole time God is doing exactly what he's planned to do. Caesar's doing what he wants to do. Ask Caesar. What's Caesar doing? Caesar is living for himself. Caesar's going as he pleases. Caesar's ruling as he pleases. Caesar's is decreeing as he pleases. What's Mary doing? Mary would just say, I'm just trying not to kill the Son of God, right? Like, I'm just trying to make sure that he has a warm place to live, that he's cared for, that he's taken care of. I'm just trying to pay my taxes. But from God's perspective, what is he doing? He's carrying out his plan to perfection. Not a single governor, not a single teenage mother, not a single mile along a 90-mile arduous journey is on accident. Every single one of them planned by the wisdom, kindness, and goodness of God. You know, if you would have asked us all those years ago, we would have told you that it was real hard to see God's goodness in the midst of our house burning down. We didn't have a choice in it. It was a decision that was made for us. In fact, it seems like the Lord made that decision. It was struck by lightning. And it burned to the ground. But you know, in the midst of all the chaos and all the turmoil, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, God relocated my family to a new church. And the church to which God relocated my family happened to be the church that I pastored the last 10 years. See, strange wrapping paper with the greatest gifts, right? That we couldn't see clearly at all what God was doing. In fact, it seemed like God wasn't there in the least. But now, looking back, all these years later, now looking back, what is it, 20, 26 years later, we're able to reflect and we can see God's fingerprints everywhere. What happened to us? We didn't have a decision in it. What did we do? We just did what we knew to do. What was God doing every step of the way exactly what he had planned to do? Think about how this works out in Mary's life. Jesus was born exactly where God planned for him to be born. Jesus is born exactly where God planned for him to be born. If you would have asked Mary, where does she want Jesus to be born? She wants Jesus to be born in the nest that she's made. Man, the nursery is in Nazareth. She lives in Nazareth. The support system is in Nazareth. All of the grandparents are in Nazareth. Everything, all the preparations that a mother and a young father-to-be make, all of that is in Nazareth. And here she is, lobbed over on the side of a, a donkey, walking 90 miles to seemingly nowhere for no apparent reason. Because Caesar made her. Because she's going to obey and she's going to be a faithful citizen. Even though the government doesn't care about her, she's going to do what she's supposed to do. And 400 years before that, God had written these words through the prophet. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Caesar did what he wanted to do. 
Mary did all that she knew to do. God was doing what he had planned to do, what he had said to do. By the way, can we just dismiss any thought that Jesus manipulated all of the prophets to be fulfilled by himself? If Jesus is just a man being born into the world, what choice did he have over where he was being born? Mary didn't want to be in Bethlehem. Joseph didn't want to be in Bethlehem. They wanted to be in Nazareth. Caesar, he just wanted some taxes. But God, working through the threads of providence, bring them into Bethlehem to perfectly fulfill exactly what he said would be fulfilled through his son. Some of you aren't sure why you are where you are. You didn't picture yourself growing up and living in Heflin or in White Plains or Oxford or Anniston. You didn't think that you'd be working at the car lot right now. Or you didn't think that you'd be working at the depot. Or you didn't think you'd be a contract employee just hoping to be able to go permanent one day. You didn't, you didn't think that you would be where you are right now. And in fact, many of the decisions as to why you are, where you are right now, have been made for you. They were beyond your control and beyond your ability to do anything different. And the only thing that you're doing is all that you know to do, just keep showing up and keep doing it. And keep trying to honor the Lord the best that you can and get over your poor attitude and do all the stuff. Can I just tell you, you may not want to be where you are. You may not have planned to be where you are, but God is doing exactly as he has planned by you, by you, and he is not off course. He is not off course. It may feel like he's off course when it's 90 miles from here to Chattanooga on the back of a donkey, and you've got to go to the bathroom, and you're full, you're full term. Oh, but when you look back, when you look back, you'll see. When you'll look back and you're able to peel back the the wrapping paper of the sovereignty of God, you'll be able to see the fingerprints of God more clearly than you could have ever imagined. And you will worship. And you will worship. Jesus is born where God planned him to be born. And Jesus is born when God planned. Jesus is born when God planned. In fact, time, I think, is a major theme here. It's a main point for Luke. That what he wants us to see, in other words, is that God's sovereignty happens in a specific time and a specific way. That God's always focused on his timing. You'll look there at verse 6. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The time came for her to give birth. So there's a lot of different things that we could think about here. First of all, only God knows how she didn't have that baby on the side of the road riding a donkey that far, right? I mean, if she's at full term, we all know, like, I know Megan, like, we would go to, to uh, anywhere we would go, like, her doc- doctor's appointments when she was pregnant were in Birmingham, and every time that she would go, she would start having these, like, Braxton Hicks contractions, and, like, it would, and, and every time, I, you know, I'm driving faster and faster and faster and faster. Because you're just panicked, right? And I don't even remember with Sarah. Sarah, she went into labor really early with Sarah. And we did an hour drive. And y'all, I'm breaking every land speed record to get to the hospital on time, right? This birth couldn't be premature. He had to be born in Bethlehem. He couldn't be born along the way. He had to be born in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, some, some scholars believe that when it says, and while they were there, the time came, it, it's kind of an exclamatory statement. It's kind of a, a statement of surprise, perhaps, that, that maybe she, he was a little bit early because he couldn't be born late either. He had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to be born while they were there. You can imagine Joseph and Mary, and Joseph is like, look, Look, sweetheart, I'm going to do my best. We're going to go up there and back as fast as we can. I'm going to do my best to get you back to Nazareth before that baby comes. And then she gets there, and there's no place in the inn. And and Joseph is there, and his hair is disheveled, and they're worn out and road-weary. And she's like, it's time, Joseph. 
And he's like, oh, let me get some hay. That's all I know to do. Let me get some hay. Right? There's, there's another way that we see the time. It says there, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that this is the time of Caesar. And this is the same word translated differently. Both of these just mean time. It's the exact same word. So you can see that in Luke's mind, he's warning us to, to connect these two thoughts together. That it's not just that it was time for the birth to happen when she gets to Bethlehem, according to the plan of God. That is the time for him to be born in the era of Caesar Augustus. So there's a couple things that's happening there. First of all, the Jewish climate at the time was a tinderbox. Ever since about 200 years prior, there was the Maccabean revolt. And the people of Israel, they were ready for their Messiah in a way they had never been before. They were ready for the Roman occupation to end, for God to come in and to fulfill his promise to them and to overthrow the government. And they were looking for a Messiah under every single rock. They were ready to go and anoint him as king, as you see all the time with Jesus' disciples. They would have never thought to look in a barn, I don't guess. But they were ready. But not only that, there's a second reason that the timing was just right in the time of Caesar Augustus. That Caesar Augustus was such a brilliant administrator that he brought in, ushered into an, a new era in Rome. or An era known as Pax Romana. It means, in Latin, it means Roman peace. And it was a 200 year uh, section of peace. And it was the first time in the history of the world that people could travel from one nation to the next, from one continent to the next, be able to move freely so without fear of repercussion. Because for the first time, everybody's under one ruler. Everybody's a part of one empire. And so the entirety of the known world was now able to be traveled, you know, by people like the apostles. That is, that Jesus was born exactly when the people were most prepared for him to come. And Jesus was born when the government was even put in a place by the sovereign hand of God so that a movement called the church could begin and spread like wildfire without great fear of repercussion. You know, God is rarely on our schedule, is he? God is rarely on our schedule, but brothers and sisters, God is always on time. God is rarely on our schedule, but he is always on time. So much of what's happening here in Luke chapter 2 has encompassed waiting. The people were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the overthrow of Rome. They were waiting for their little baby to be born. They were waiting to find the one that would ascend the Davidic throne and to re-inaugurate. And maybe this morning you're waiting. You're waiting. And the timing feels all wrong and it feels like nothing's going your way. And it feels like you're in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing with the wrong people. Can I just say, you may not want to be there. You just do what you know to do. Do what God would have you to do. And trust that God is doing what he planned to do. That you've been waiting a long time for a spouse, or you've been waiting a long time for a child, you've been waiting a long time for a better job, you've been waiting a long time. But did you know that it's in the midst of your waiting that you oftentimes are formed most sincerely into the character of Christ? It is in the midst of your waiting that the Lord prepares your heart for what he has for you in the next season. It is in the midst of your waiting that you are storing up for yourself a storehouse of treasure in the next life. It is in the midst of your waiting that you can identify with the parents of Christ as they awaited his coming it's in the midst of your waiting that you have the opportunity to trust in God that God is at work that God is at work so God did what he planned to do he, Jesus was born where he planned he was born when God planned and Jesus is born to be whom God planned 
1,000 years earlier, God had made a promise to David that his son was going to sit upon the throne. He had made a promise to David that his son was going to reign upon the throne, that he was going to rule over all the nations, and that that throne would endure forever. And both Caesar and Mary and Joseph are the evidence as to why that promise is in real peril. First of all, there's Caesar. Caesar is a pagan Gentile ruler. He, he doesn't love God. In fact, he's not even able to come into the temple of God. He has no care or concerns about the promises of God. And yet here is Caesar, and Caesar has the very authority that David is supposed to have. Caesar has the very power and freedom and wealth and prosperity and might. That from the, from the Israelites' perspective, that's supposed to be us, man. That's supposed to be us. And then you factor in Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem because that's the city of David. And they are of the lineage of David. And who is David's royal line? They're peasants. They're peasants and they don't even have a place to lay their, their child's head down at night. They don't even have a, 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 an ability. Instead, they're having to go and live according to the whims of some pagan ruler. They're, they're having to do whatever Caesar wants them to do. And they are supposed to be the people that are ruling over not just Israel, but the globe, the nations, all peoples in the honor of God. The promise seems to be in real peril. And so what does God do? God does what he does. He fulfills the promise in the most opposite and backward way possible. Rather than bringing in this triumphant king who is mighty like Saul and impressive to the eye and, and the one that has all the charisma to raise up an army and overthrow the nations. There's a baby. And he's born to peasants. Away from his home. Without a bed to lay in. That God might save the world. That God might save the world. I wonder in your life right now, if you wonder where in the world is God? Maybe you look around and it seems like the presence and the promises of God in your life are in real peril. You look at your job, you look at your marriage, it's in shambles. You look at your kids and they're rebelling. You think about yourself and you're filled with anxiety and depression. You're sad and you're angry all at the same time. And you wonder where in the world is the Lord? How in the world is God doing this? And it seems as though the harder that you seek to honor the Lord, the more you seek to give your life to the Lord, the harder and more difficult your life becomes. The more pain that seems to be introduced into your life. And it seems as though that God's goodness is anywhere but close to you. I want to remind you that your Savior was born into hay. That God works in the ways that are the most opposite to the ways of this world. And that the difficulties and the hardships that you face may not be a sign that God has forsaken you. It very likely is a sign that God is at work in you. That God is at work in you. That yeah, Caesar is going to do what Caesar does. And you're just trying to make it and do all you know to do. But let me just promise you, brothers and sisters, God is doing what he's planned to do. God is going to be victorious in the most opposite way possible. Look at the cross. See, God didn't raise up a military to overthrow Rome. God had Rome erect a cross, and on that cross he laid his son, and it looked as though his son was defeated. But instead, upon that cross, death was defeated, and sin was defeated, and all of our future suffering was defeated. And there on the cross, where the crown of thorns was woven around his head, was secured for you and I, a crown of glory. God works in the opposite ways. 
Oh, the greatest gifts come in strange packaging, don't they? The greatest gifts come in strange packaging. See, Jesus is born to do what God planned. Jesus is born to do, I, I pointed out earlier, verse 7, where it talks about her firstborn son. And it's rich with a biblical heritage, firstborn son. We could think about what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. And Paul is there, he's making the case that, that this isn't just a man. This isn't just a boy. This is God. This is God, the, the deity, the, the, the incarnate flesh of the living God. And he says this, he says that he is the firstborn of all creation, that by him and through him and for him all things that have been made are, ha, have been made through him and that he is the one that will hold together and sustain all things. That firstborn, in other words, it doesn't necessarily mean chronological. Again, we know that this literally is Mary's firstborn son, but firstborn, uh, Israel is called God's firstborn son in the Old Testament. That is, it's not that it's the oldest nation, it's just that it's the chosen nation. It's the beloved of God. David is called God's firstborn son in the Old Testament. And it's not that he was the firstborn. In fact, we know that he was the baby of the, of the house of Jesse. He was the least impressive. It just means that he was a particularly special son. And when we come to the son here, what we see is that, that Jesus is the firstborn son, but he's the firstborn son because he is the beloved of God, because he is the chosen of God, because he is himself God, preeminent. That there is something about this baby that separates him from all the other babies that have ever been born. There's another thought that should come into our minds, and it's from Exodus. Do you remember how the Passover was inaugurated? The original Passover celebration. God sends a final plague against Egypt because they have held his people hostage. They, they have, Pharaoh has hardened his heart to the Lord and would not listen to the Lord. And so what God says is that the angel of death will sweep across Egypt. And only those whose doorposts are painted with the blood of the lamb will survive it. And in other words, the firstborn son of every house not covered by the blood is going to die. It affects even Pharaoh's own house when Pharaoh's own firstborn son dies. Do you know when the next time in the book of Luke, the Passover is going to come up? The Passover is going to come up in Luke chapter 22. And you know what Jesus is going to say? Jesus is going to say, this is my body that is broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. That I am the Passover lamb. That the firstborn son of God. The living God. Through whom, for whom, and by whom. All things have been made. Is the very one that has come to lay down his life. That he might paint our lives with the blood of the lamb. That is that he had a mission. Caesar just thought he was doing what he wanted to do. Mary, she was just doing all that she knew to do. But God was doing exactly what he planned to do. And nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the plan of God, even, even, even a Roman cross. That God takes all the evil in our lives, and God takes all the pain in our lives, and God takes all the suffering in our lives, and God takes all the abuse in our lives, and God takes all the evil that has been done against us in our lives, and God takes all the trauma in our lives, and God works through those evils to manipulate them so that one day, in hindsight, we are able to lift up our voice and say, praise God, praise God. Is one day, one day we'll be able to see what God sees. It's going to take a while. But one day we're going to take all those old sufferings 
We're going to take all that old pain, all those old tears, all that old loss, all that old suffering, and we're going to hang it up in front of the congregation of the saints, and we're going to say, look at what my God has done. I could not see it then, but I see it now. The sovereignty of God had been supremely wrapped to present to me a glory, a glory that cannot be matched. Oh, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Praise God. Praise God. That's the story of Christmas. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.